Hey everyone, welcome to Fostering Excellence in Agility, the podcast. I'm your host, competitor, coach, and mentor, Megan Foster. I help agility enthusiasts focus on the small details of training and behavior while still having a clear understanding of their big picture goals. Join me as I take you through key elements of dog agility training, competing, and teaching, and how you can take action today to start improving your skills within the sport. Let's get started. Hello, podcast listening friends. Today, I want to share with you a few principles of teaching. These are the things that I am finding show up time and time again when I'm working with clients both in person and online. And I think that we can all be better at using and applying. So yeah, today I am talking to the instructors and the coaches out there, but also I'm hoping that this helps students maybe communicate better with their instructors, maybe advocate better for themselves with their instructors if they kind of have some words surrounding what's going on in the coach's head at any given moment. Let's dive in. I'm going to stick with three tips today, three kind of principles today, because I think that they can kind of unwind and unravel into lots of applicable information rather quickly. So the first one, hands down, there can only be one learner at a time. There can only be one learner at a time. As an agility instructor or coach, in our heads, we may be thinking that we're there as a dog trainer, but really any dog trainer is actually just a human trainer that also happens to know a lot about dogs. And so if you are instructing others or you are coaching others, but you still kind of align yourself as only a dog trainer... It's time to upgrade those skills and it's time to upgrade that narrative. When you are instructing in dog agility or any dog sport or even just pet dog skills, it's your job to make these skills sustainable when you are no longer there. And so when you are teaching agility you may feel like you're teaching agility to the dog, but you really are teaching agility to the person who then is teaching agility to their dog. And so there can only be one person learning (laughs) at one time. So this is why I advocate for practicing a lot of things without the dog, making sure that the mechanics are fluent and the handling techniques are fluent and that the handler, the human learner, understands the concept that we are about to teach to the dog. Because what happens when you have both learning at the same time is that essentially it's too many spinning plates and one of them is going to get dropped. So it's really, really difficult to both focus on the human's experience and the dog's experience at the same time. So by splitting those two things apart, it is actually going to make your job as the coach easier because then 
when you do add them back together, you get to choose where to focus your energy. So for example, we're going to practice some rear crosses without the dog first. That way the handler is really comfortable with the sequence that they're about to attempt. They understand the cue that they're supposed to give and they are really consistent with their mechanics of that cue when they're practicing without the dog. So when they go to get the dog, we're technically in dog training mode now as the instructor, but this the human learner is the one that is kind of is still kind of developing this skill because we all know that if the handler gets the rear cross correct, the dog will follow the rear cross appropriately. We know this. So when I start that technique training, the handler already knows their instructions and we've already been training the handler. So then when I say, okay, handler, go get your dog. Let's do this. I'm going to use reward placement and whatever I have to do to make sure that that dog does a rear cross when that handler cues it. Because I need the handler to have that positive reinforcement experience of I know how to do a rear cross and look at the proof that my dog just did it. Okay, If you know that your handler knows how to cue a rear cross and that they're going to cue the rear cross because they've just done it five or ten times without the dog, you can do this. And then you can be focusing on one learner at a time. Because very, very quickly, if the first couple of attempts with the dog are successful, your job is done. Because now the handler has some proof that they can, in fact, cue a rear cross. And their dog can, in fact, follow the rear cross and still take the jumps. And now they're trained. You can ask them to do that rear cross again one more time without your help with the reward placement or the lure or the prop or whatever. You can take away the help. You can take away the training wheels. The rear cross will still exist. And now that team has nothing but success on their side. So that when you introduce the next sequence, which is maybe the exact same type of rear cross, just with like a different approach or a different exit line, something's just a little bit different. They can generalize that skill so well because their only experience with the rear cross is a successful one. Versus if you didn't do the dogless training and they just came out and they tried to do it with their dog and it didn't, and you, and you also didn't give the training wheels. You didn't help with the reward placement or helping them with a prop or a lure or anything. You didn't do any of that. Handler tries to do the rear cross. They think that they're doing a rear cross, but they actually cue the dog to go to the backside. So the dog goes to the backside. Handler thinks that they've done something wrong, but they haven't done something wrong. They've just done something different. They've done a beautiful backside send. The dog follows the handling beautifully. But their history, when you pull up rear cross in their brain, when they pull that file from their brain, they have, oh, I don't do this well. Or, oh, I don't do this right. So always, always, always decide who is learning in that moment, is it the dog? Is it the handler? 
How am I going to separate it out? How am I going to make this as successful as possible? How can I split this in a way that when my human learner thinks rear cross, they only pull up a file that is built on success? This is incredibly important when they are new or less experienced because they can't fill in the gaps. They don't know that when they cued the rear cross incorrectly, but they cued a beautiful backside send, they they don't appreciate the teamwork in that mistake. They don't appreciate how beautifully that their dog follows the handling because all they can think about is how they didn't cue a rear cross properly. So it is on us to make sure that if we are teaching a new skill to the human, that it is almost impossible for them to not get it correct. The same way we act when we're introducing a new skill to the dog, we set up the training session and the environment and the starting point and where the prop is and where the reinforcement is going to be placed. We set it up so pristinely that it's nearly impossible for the dog to go wrong. We have to do the same for our human learners. So coaching principle number one is there can only be one learner. And if you are still aligning yourself as a dog trainer only or an agility coach only, I want you to change that narrative just a little and kind of own the fact that you coach people in dog agility or that you are a people trainer of dog training. Okay, just kind of bring yourself up to speed with that label, that narrative, that story. All right. Principle number two, coaches, instructors, you need to keep some secrets. I love knowing things and I love sharing what I know. But there are some things, some information that we need to keep to ourselves until it's appropriate for the student to need that information. Because Students, we know this because we see it in our dogs. They are sponges when they are excited. They're new to agility or they've been doing agility for a while, but they're excited about learning agility. They are often trying to absorb every ounce of information that you are giving them and also apply it. So if you are providing information that they cannot use yet, I suspect you're adding too many plates to their little spinners and they will also drop a plate. And unfortunately, we can't control which plate they drop. What we can control is which plates we give them. So let's go back to this skill acquisition, this handling skill acquisition. So when they're learning any handling technique, front cross, rear cross, blind cross, German turn, doesn't matter, backside send, um, reverse spin. It doesn't matter what they're learning. But when they're learning it, if you tell them all at the same time, this is how you do a front cross. This is when you do a front cross. This is where you do a front cross. This is the line a front cross creates. These are the common problems of a front cross. And also, this is how you reward a front cross. So let's just say you gave them those six plates. Their heads are about to explode because they're still back on what is a front cross. Because they don't have the 
all of the background knowledge that you have as the instructor. They don't have all the secrets. They don't have all the files, all the buckets to organize that information into. But if we are using principle number one, there can only be one learner at a time. I can just focus on this. This is the footwork of a front cross or these are the mechanics of a front cross. This is one because that one plate is actually quite a few small plates that lead up to one tray, right? Because there's what your feet are doing and what your arms are doing and what your eyes are doing. All of those things that go into a front cross, they make up one plate, but they're not, those plates are loose in that student's head right now. They're not one plate. There's a lot, so we've got to split that apart because breaking all of that, just how to do a front cross into those little pieces on top of all of the theoretical information about how to apply and when to apply and where to apply a front cross, they're not going to be able to use all of that information and they will drop many plates because of it. So... This, let's parallel this right into dog training. Be a splitter, not a lumper. Come on. We have to do one thing at a time and keep some secrets because we don't need them to be responsible for the timing of a front cross if they don't understand what a front cross is and how to execute a front cross. And we're doing this dog list to start because we're splitting as best we can. So the timing isn't relevant yet. But then maybe the second thing, once we see some fluency, that when we say front cross, they just snap to it. They don't have to think about which arm or which leg or which direction to turn or where to look. Then we give them, okay, let's add in some timing. I'm going to be your dog for you. Or this other student is going to be the dog for you. And let's practice the timing. But this is going to be slow motion because you're working with a human and not your uh, dog running at you as fast as it can and not with the dog that is going to try and distract you from doing it perfectly okay then okay so now we have what a front cross is how to do it efficiently and we have even practiced the timing a little bit okay this is a great time to add in the dog kind of in the way that I just described in the previous principle making sure that the handler is still learning the front cross so the instructor is going to take care of the dog's behavior. I just want the dog to match what the handler is doing because the handler has put in this effort to learn the thing and they deserve the reinforcement of the dog following that correctly. Okay. Then we can start to generalize and give them more information over time. How do, we, how do we know that it's okay to use a front cross? Well, let's look at another sequence and see how it compares to the one that we just learned it on. How do we know when it's not a good time to use a front cross? Um, how do we decide where we should be when we start the front cross? All of those things are individual lessons, individual plates that we add onto their spinners as they get comfortable spinning the previous plate. Okay, so we're adding more and more elements 
of the front cross or any technique over time so that, again, when they think of that technique, what the student feels is, I know this. And that just feels good. It's not fun for me when I go somewhere to teach and I say, all right, let's work on blind crosses and the entire room groans. That's not fun for me. What's fun for me is that when they hear that, they're excited to have more plates added to their spinners about whatever concept I'm teaching. But if they are used to being overfaced, and if they are used to being given too many plates to spin and dropping them all the time, they are not excited about learning new things. They are not excited about uh, learning a new technique that you just read about and learned yourself, or they're not excited about learning a new technique that they really need because they're in masters now, or they're starting to run premiere. We want them to be excited about learning new things the same way that we want our dogs to be excited to begin a training session with us. So again, you have to make sure that you are aligning yourself with the person and really going the extra mile to make sure that your human learner is having a good experience. It's not enough to just make sure the dog is having a good experience because the dog doesn't write the checks, right? The dog doesn't sign up for another class. So this is so important that we create a good experience for our human learners so that we can continue to grow this sport and encourage new people to try this sport. And finally, the third principle I want to share with you all today is that the coach's job is to explain things as many times as necessary and as in as many different ways as necessary. Okay? So if you are the type of instructor that gets frustrated that you are repeating yourself all of the time, or you are saying the same thing to the same student week after week after week, I am here to say that that is your job. You signed up for that. You decided that you were going to be the expert in the room on dog agility. And so they are signing up. They are paying for your time to explain dog agility to them. So it is your job to explain it. And if it is that you are repeating yourself and they still aren't getting it, you need to find different ways of repeating yourself. You have to find... An analogy, a demonstration, a YouTube video, an article on the internet, a blog, whatever it takes in order to get your message across, that is your job. Because when they sign up, they are committing themselves to us and our knowledge for the length of that session. So we owe it to them to make sure that they get the information that they signed up for. So if you say, um, all right, do it again, but I need you to rotate when the dog is one stride before takeoff. Let's just say. And they don't do it. And then you go, all right, 
I need you to rotate when your dog is looking at the jump and they still can't do it. I need you to think of this as if it were a lead out and start rotating as soon as you release the dog from the start line. And when do you think you would release the dog from the start line? When do you think that might happen? And start, you just get them thinking about it in different ways. But if you're only repeating the same thing and again and again and again, I guarantee you they are not ignoring your instructions on purpose. So it's that either they don't get it or they haven't been in a place to hear it yet because of something else, right? Maybe they got one too many plates going on and and things like that. We have to always be aware that our learners are not getting it wrong on purpose and they are not ignoring our instructions on purpose. So we have to assume that our instructions are not adequate if they aren't being followed. So we have to, again, be a splitter, not a lumper. Break it down more. Make sure that you're not asking too much. Are they worried about something in the environment? Is their dog worried about something? I know that when my dog isn't 100% there, I cannot focus on being a good handler because the only thing I'm thinking about is my dog's experience. So that's fine. I would love that. If, But if my human learner is currently only able to focus on their dog's experience, then I need to make sure that I'm taking care of the human's experience. So back to there can only be one learner at a time. But if I want to, I can relieve my handler of having to take care of their dog and I can pull out the reward and I can make sure that the dog's behavior will match the person's behavior. And so that way the handler can relax, they can focus on their skills, I can focus on taking care of the dog. And so all of these principles that I've talked about today need to work together. And it all comes down to you have to align yourself with giving that human a good experience. And make sure that you are checking in with them and that if they aren't doing what you asked, you got to ask it in a different way. I also just want to point out that our instructions need to be short, they need to be repeatable, and they need to be quick. So if you're having a lengthy discussion, say in between reps or anything, you can have that lengthy discussion. But the last thing that student hears is the action item that you need from them. And it's even better if they can repeat it back to you. So students, if you're listening, (laughs) if you're still listening, when you get an instruction from your coach or teacher, repeat it back to them. Because if you can't, that is golden feedback for the coach to say it in a different way. Or if you try and repeat it back to them and you don't get it right, they're going to have to repeat it to you again. And they're going to have to say it in a different way or they're going to have to show you now or they're going to they're going to give you what you need if it's very clear that you need it right and then it's a little bit less frustrating just across the board when we have that feedback loop from coach to student okay coaches 
Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope that these principles of teaching are insightful and helpful to you. And I would love to have conversations with all of the instructors and coaches out there on how they are applying these principles already and how we can all apply these principles better in the future. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to synergydogsports.com slash community to access bonus content and to get your questions answered via podcast episodes and other social media content. If you'd like to know more about what I'm up to and what's coming up, make sure to bookmark my website, www.synergydogsports.com.